Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children 18 plus, you are tuned in to the Loan Officer Podcast with me, Dustin Owen, and a super special guest, live on location, Music City, Smashville. We are in the city of Nashville, the state of Tennessee, and all the way from Minnesota, the one, the only, Molly Nadu. Peterson. Molly, welcome to the Loan Officer Podcast. Wow. Thank you, Dustin. I'm honored to be here. You've been carving a way forward for a platform and forum for loan officers to come together. And I just feel like super stoked. Well, so I'm super stoked to have you on. You probably don't know this because you're super busy. By the way, like who is Molly? Well, Molly is, she's a wife. She's a mom. She's a sister. She's a daughter. But she's also a badass business professional, someone who has averaged over $100 million in mortgage loan production volume for three years in a row. Three years, right? The numbers were like 98 million, 115 million, and last year was what, a buck 20? What'd you do last year? Okay, so don't judge, but I'm really bad at my numbers. I think it was 104, something like that. Okay, 104 million. Yeah. What was it the previous year? Out of curiosity. Ish. Uh, ish. 110. Okay. <laughs> if Andy Burton's listening, he's like shaming me right now. He, yeah. I'm not but, memorizing my But what, what I was getting is you're a super busy person. Mm-hmm. So I know you probably don't get to tune into TLOP as much as some of our more avid fans do. But for people who tune in, they hear about Molly because I talk about you. Like I name drop you and Andy and Gwen and Mike Smalley. Like, I use you all to tell stories throughout. So for me to have the same Molly Nadu that I talk about in various episodes on as a guest, a $100 million producer that can teach us about mindset or about the things that make you stay up at night as you look forward into our industry, like this is a super awesome treat and something that we are only able to do because you and I are in Nashville together at the same conference. I mean, you're making me... Flesh that feels so good, and I thank well, you. I'm not I, lying. Thank you. I appreciate. Yeah, no, it's the truth. The encouragement. It's the truth. So here's what I want to do because I know we we have a jam packed agenda, mm-hmm. right? Because we have various breakout sessions that we're going to go to, and some networking functions, and maybe we're going to go to a couple free meals and drink some free free wine. I would love to learn, for me personally, but also share with the audience your personal story, your personal journey, things that you learned along the way. Like I'm assuming you didn't just like go to school, graduate, and roll out of bed and be like, yeah, I'm going to do the mortgage industry as a career, and I'm going to do it like at the highest level, like at a level that very few are able to do. So let's talk about and let's unpack, how did you get into the mortgage industry? Ooh. So, so long ago, um, I came into the industry in the year 2000. Prior to that, I sold furniture. I was a salesperson. And actually, there were a couple of clients of mine that would come in and buy cool furniture. They dressed really in appealing clothing, and it just it caught my attention. In particular, one of my clients, he was a MI rep, and he would tell me, you'd be good at mortgage, you'd be good at mortgage. And honestly, I had no idea what it meant. Looking back, I think my journey was probably, you know, maybe divinely led. I didn't know at the time, but in retail it's nights, it's weekends, it's holidays. And I was missing that part of life. As I was getting older, I was missing weddings and baptisms and I wasn't going to church anymore. 
and so one day on my Wednesday day off in furniture, that's when you get your day off on a Wednesday, I opened up the yellow pages. Probably most of your audience doesn't know what the yellow pages are. Imagine just going to Google. <laughs> she went to Google. Yeah. She went to Indeed.com. And I just started calling mortgage companies. I had a ton of interviews lined up in one day. And then I needed a resume and I just kind of figured it out. I interviewed uh, by a bunch. I was offered jobs by a bunch more, but training by only one company. So I took the job with training from the one company. I love learning this, by the way. This is my first time. Molly and I have been friends for over 10 years, but this is my first time knowing that you made a conscious decision to take the job to offer training. True. Okay. It was AB and Amro Mortgage, and it was outside of my town. So this was in Bloomington, uh, Minnesota, which is like forty-five minutes from my hometown. So I'm in an area I don't know anybody, but I start. And guess who I started to call? I kept all of the receipts from my furniture clients. Good for you. I would Good pick up the you. phone and cold call my <laughs> furniture clients, like, "Hey, I'm a lender now," and. I'll never forget this. What a blessing. My very first loan was my manager from the furniture <laughs> store. When I resigned, he said, cool, I have to refinance. I'll let you do my loan. And he allowed me to practice on him. Uh, uh, you know, thankfully I had help, of course, but it started there. I didn't know that I loved it until, hmm, I'm not really sure, but it was pretty early on in the career where I knew that it was exciting and fun and there was a huge um, amount that I had to learn and that was exciting to me. Over time, I became a broker and then when we had to have FHA and uh, you know audited financials, that was really beyond my scope of what I could handle. So then I found myself searching for a mortgage bank or correspondent lender and eventually that brought me to Waterstone Mortgage. In 2010, we so, joined Waterstone. So you entered into the mortgage business early 2000s. 2000, yeah. And the year was 2000. Yeah. So year 2000, you were selling furniture, people in the furniture, your clients convinced you, hey, you'd be really good at this mortgage gig. Yes. So you found a job, but not just any job, job that offered training. I think it's a huge takeaway right there for anyone who's you know listening and taking notes figured out how to do a loan, right? You leveraged or leaned into what you knew and what you had and what you had was a past client database, right? You had a past client database of people who bought furniture from you. They already liked you. They already trusted you. They already bought from you. Yes. So you, you leaned into that to gain experience. And eventually you're like, hey, this company that trained me was a fantastic company, but maybe it's not my end all be all. I kind of want to be a little bit more entrepreneurial. So you went out and became a broker, meaning you were an independent 1099 mortgage broker. I was a broker. I moved back to my hometown. And that's where I realized, um, working away from my hometown, the people in my city weren't willing to come to do business with me outside of my sphere. My father had and mother, they owned a laundromat and dry cleaners in my hometown. They had established a name. My grandfather owned it before them. And people called me Al's daughter. So knowing I had to get back to my town because relationships was becoming apparent. I needed to be in relationship and um, uh, kind of leverage my family name. Yeah. So once I moved back into town, my new prospect list was my mom and dad's address book, the handwritten address book. 
I would just take it from my mom and start calling their friends and my aunties and my cousins and using you, that for lead generation. I was going to say, do you remember, what was your script like? Because we still today, it's 2022 and we're onboarding a younger professional. We still tell them to do this. We t we, like I would tell them, hey, who'd you send holiday cards to? If you were to throw a wedding and have like a Mac Daddy wedding, who would you invite? Because those people need to be the first people that you contact. Yeah. What I'm curious though, do you remember what your script was? Well, probably similar to today because these are going to be warm calls, people I know. And starting with, of course, care and concern and connection. And then oftentimes I ask the questions I'd like to be asked. Where are you in your career? How is it going? If they're, if they're self-employed, I'll dig a little deeper. If they're not self-employed, you know, it's a different <laughs> conversation. If I have a friend that's a nurse, for example, what happens in your world? What's your career path look like? And at some point, they'll respond asking about, you know, my business. And it happens naturally. I don't force it. Hey, I'm a loan officer. Do you know anyone looking to buy or sell? I start with connection so they know first that I care. And there's like an authentic, like sharing of mine. Well, yeah, I would have been like, Molly, WTF, why are you calling? Like, what's up? What do you need? Yeah, I, that's just not, I just don't go like straight for the, yeah. um, you know, throat. I like to connect. Like for me, the relationship piece is um, the beautiful part. And maybe, you know, nothing comes of that call. I might not get a lead, but they know I'm in this business. They know that I'm, it's my career. I'm going to be here for a long time. And they won't be surprised when they get mail from me or emails and my marketing. So it just starts to create, um, you know, like that network of people that yeah, like I, I'm, I'm sitting here listening to you and one, like I love this part of the podcast. Like I love the interview portion because I'm learning something about a friend of mine that I didn't already know. And then the mortgage sales trainer or this coach in me starts just like geeking out. I'm like, oh my God, I don't even know if Molly knew she was doing that back in the day, but that's what we still teach. That is amazing. But like I think about if I'm onboarding a younger professional, like a rookie loan officer, and I'm telling them to reach out to their friends and family, for me, when I was in those shoes, it wasn't authentic for me to reach out and try to hit you up for business. That's just not who I am. So I never would have done that. Like if I was trying to call you, Molly, and my friend, I'm like, hey, Molly, it's been a while since we talked. You probably wondering why I'm calling, right? And you were like, yeah, like, what's up, Dustin? It's been a while, but how are you? I'm like, dude, I'm doing fantastic. Hey, I'm calling you because I need your help. I'm calling you because I've embarked on a new journey in my career. And this journey, it, it mandates that I network with realtors and builders. And I was just thinking, well, who would Molly use if she was going to build a house today? Who would Molly use if she had to sell her house? Because if you know that person, I think I should get to know them as well. So like I always use my friends and family as a way to actually connect me to realtors that I then wanted to call and solicit. For whatever weird reason, I felt comfortable soliciting a stranger, but I never felt comfortable soliciting like a friend and family member. Um, but I, I did not make that phone call. And then of course, when I had Molly on the phone, I'm like, hey, Molly, if you really want to help me out, my manager has tasked me with giving 100 mortgage reviews. I have to give 100 mortgage reviews. You probably don't even know what a mortgage review is, do you? Like, just like you have to shop your car insurance every single year, you should probably like look at your current mortgage to make sure the mortgage that worked for you when you bought your house is still the best mortgage for you. Now, it's no obligation to you, but it's a good exercise for me to do. And if you would be willing to oblige, that would, that would help me also on this journey. Uh, so I love that. I have not done that. And I feel like I need to write that down. 
Um, you know, my earlier phases was far less eloquent. Yeah, well, of course. Uh, you know, I, I had some friends that were in business and sales, and in our early 20s, we would network at the bar. Wow. That <laughs> town. I mean, I mean, honestly, we kind of got our start there just because that's where people were, and it was like the happy hour, the social time where influential people were. We purposefully chose which establishments to visit knowing the type of clientele that was there. So we had to find ways to be in the public and basically network. Over time, I learned systems and processes and like who to call and what to say. But that was a lot later in my career. So then let's kind of jump into later in your career a little bit. But before we do, I'm, I'm curious, I have a couple questions for you. And they could be like quick answer, like rapid repeat, machine gun fire, blah, 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 let's go. What do you love most about the mortgage industry? Potential. Okay, unpack that a little bit. I, it, this, this could mean different for each person. So the potential for career path and growth for the individual or salesperson, and even in um, like the operation side, uh, it, it's just unbelievable how far you can take a career. It's really incredible, quite frankly. The second piece is when dealing with a client, just helping educate them, equip them with money principles, helping them to understand how to position themselves in a better place, like just the potential there. So I, I kind of love all of the opportunity it can bring from, you know, putting the loan together to de dealing with the client to my own personal success. 20 years ago, what would advice would you give to yourself, right? To, to you mm -hmm. 20 years ago, knowing everything, you know, now all the success that you've, you've, you've been able to, um, accomplish, right. All of the stress that you've had to endure learning from that. What would, what advice would you give to yourself 20 years ago? Yeah. Find, Mentors, surround yourself with the people you want to become. I didn't understand that, know that, or have that for the first decade of my career. And once I did find high achievers, the people I wanted to become, then my eyes were opened to what was possible. And I became incredibly curious of what was my potential and started to believe that I could go to a whole nother you know, levels, like, like yeah. levels I never even imagined were possible, but that came through other people. I saw them do it and then I wanted to do it. And then they also encouraged me and showed, showed me the way. So then that's, that's what I want to get into is the mindset aspect of that, right? I'm assuming there was some kind of a shift in your mindset at some point in your career. Can you get as granular, like, you know, the month and the year, or do you have an approximation? Like, when did you go from closing your 13 or your 18 or your 20 million a year? And you're like, wow, I've made it. I'm doing awesome. Look at this money that I'm making um, to, eh, yeah. that's good. But I could do five times that. There was um, a couple of moments that were transformational for me. The first was um, Waterstone Mortgage hired the core training to have um, Rick Ruby come in, teach or coach a group of us. I think it was 15 and we would do a half an hour every other week. It was a pilot program for the core. 
And this um, individual named Rick Ruby coached us. And every single week, someone else fell out of the program. And he would, <laughs> he would spend half of our call, you know, kind of crabbing about the people that weren't doing it. And I'm like, hey, I'm here. I could see it was his ministry. I understood his intention. And I just loved his brutal honesty. It was the first time I had someone just be brutally honest. And I then was um, realizing that so much of my time was spent on nonproductive things. I was wasting my days, but I felt so, so busy. I was so, so busy. But when I really had a, a process to look at where my time was being allocated, it was humiliating to the point where I knew I had to make a change. Fast forward, I go to um, an event that uh, it was a core event. And so these um, loan officers in the room were producing at a level I had never even been exposed to, knew was possible. It was the first time I um, like had access to it and I wanted it. I, I, I could see after spending time with these people, they were humble, they were learner, you know, learning based and they were just like walking it, walking it out. So when I saw that, I became deeply curious of what my potential was and I wanted to go get it. Like, because you were like 15 years into your career at this point, right? Yeah. And honestly, I was probably a 10 or $12 million producer at that time. And I don't know, I was maybe making like 150000 a year. And I thought I arrived. I mean, to me, that was, and that was which, an amazing life, right? It yeah, was which, incredible. And it is. Yeah, And it, it is. is. But, but when you mentioned earlier, what you love about this industry is the potential. Yes. Yeah. 150 is fantastic. But not when you see the potential and you realize, oh, I may be falling short. Yeah. Is that available to me? Can I go to, it's like a whole new realm, you know? Um, and so that curiosity really drove kind of my grit and determination to um, seek out what it took to become a top producer. Then, um, <coughs> I don't know, once I start that process of, implementing certain disciplines, managing my time, how to hire a team and train them. It takes time, but very slowly but surely things started to come together. Fast forward, I was in an office with Lisa Wells. Yes, love Lisa. Incredible producer, someone that I was like, oh my gosh, I want to be Lisa when I grow up. And she invited me to be in her um, shop and now at the time I'm doing maybe eight, 10 loans a month. I once in a while did 12 loans, maybe once. And Lisa says, okay, cool. Now that you're in, Hey, listen, in order to work here, you have to close 15 loans a month and walked away. <laughs> and I was like, what just happened? Holy cow. I don't know if I can do this. I might need to renege on the deal. And like, I had this moment in my mind where I had to make a decision. Am I going to, um, hit the expectations that Lisa had for me, which were beyond my own that I had for myself, quite frankly, or would I back away because it felt scary and overwhelming? And so I chose like, okay, well, we're just going to have to figure it out. We have to do 15 loans a month to work here. So it was like fear of failure that started to motivate me at that point. Plus I wanted to make Lisa proud. She had a high expectation of me like a parent would, and I didn't want to disappoint her. 
Would you describe yourself as a competitor? Yes. Yes. Did you, did you do competition things growing up? Yes. Yes. What did you compete in? I was a um, springboard and platform diver, my main gig, and then a gymnast. Uh, so it was individual, very mental. Yeah, but like I'm listening to you talk and I'm looking at like common characteristics of people who are successful in this industry. And those of us that are, are successful, we tend to come from a background where we don't back down from adversity. Like we're used to being challenged. We kind of sometimes like um, do better in situations where someone's going to call us out or someone's going to tell us, hey, you can't do that. We're like, hey, you know what? Hold my beer, right? Like, like I would love for you to tell me I can't do something just so I can try really hard to prove you wrong. Um, I don't know if that's like a, a good quality or a bad quality. It's just a quality that mo many of us have. And I'm listening to you talk. I'm like, yeah, Molly had to have been a competitor. Well, that reminds me when I quit the furniture business and went to a straight commission mortgage business, I did have one of my bosses say, you will starve. And that for me was like a chip on the shoulder. It's like the Michael Jordan, the game within the game. And for me, that carried me like, watch me, watch me not starve and thrive. I, and because he said that, some people might go, oh, gosh, that was mean. But it was a motivator. I needed it. And I'm so grateful that he dropped that because I was going to be successful in spite of the comment. Yeah. I had someone uh, not tell me directly, but tell my wife, oh, terrible timing. He missed the refi boom because I got in the industry in 2004. And I'm like, huh, well, all the research I've done uh, has told me that this is a great industry, especially if I focus on the purchase business and I focus on building a, a local following where realtors and builders prefer me because I'm really good at my job. But I'm glad, you know, you feel so strongly about my career choices that you're going to tell my wife that I, I missed the boat, basically. And that chip is still embedded on this shoulder. And I still use it today. Because I'm like, what, what year are we in? 2022? That was 2004. I mean, look, I have hit a couple refi booms. Right. We hit a refi boom in 2013. We hit one in 2020, 2021. But I, I didn't. That was a refi tsunami. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like extreme. Yeah. No, it was it was good. What um, what does your day look like now? Like we're fast forward. You're a 20 year veteran, right? Like what does a a 20 year veteran who closes over one hundred million dollars in production? How many units was that roughly? <laughs> I'm sorry. 250, um, like 300, 400, 400 families. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So, so 400 transactions. So roughly 33.333 a month is what that would be. So 30 to 35 transactions. What does your team look like? So, um, I have 10 on the team and we have, um, so three front end people that take in our leads or the welcoming committee. They get all the documentation, um, prepare them for pre-approval, set the file up for me. And sometimes they take the appointment or sometimes I take the appointment. After I have the appointment and they're approved that, they stay with them until we get into contract. Then we have three contract to close, um, direct submit to underwriting. Uh, Basic processor. Exactly. Yep. I, I have an executive administrative assistant. She manages my email and my calendar. Um, and then we now have a um, marketing position that runs our social media communications events. So that's been a really fun addition. So I, I appreciate you like laying it out there because obviously anyone who's tuning in one individual does not just close 400 transactions. Like <coughs> the world doesn't operate that way, True. but I'm going to get on my uh, pedestal for just a minute 
because I know there's some people that are listening. Oh, of course Molly can do 400. Look at that team. She's got 10 people. I'm like, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. Like, like Molly originally was closing seven or 10 transactions by herself and then hired someone and then went from 10 to 15 and then hired someone else. Like I always get a little bit pissy when loan originators like, well, if I had an assistant, I would do. I'm like, no, you would do if you would do, you know, meaning if you wanted to do 10 units a month, you'd go out and do it. Nothing would get in your way. Not this. Well, if I had an assistant, oh, it's easy for Molly to do 400 because she has a team. No, no, it wasn't easy. I'm assuming I'm sure it was a lot of hard work, a lot of tearful nights, a lot of stressful, a lot of time missed with Chad and your boys, right? Like I'm sure in today's world, you've been able to hone in your craft and you get to see your husband and you get to see your boys. But I'm assuming that wasn't always the case. True. Uh, I've never used the word easy for at any point in our career of what we do. Um, and take, you're right, hiring, you know, there's metrics for that uh, on when to hire so that you can sustain and support. Once I hire, I'm committed to that family. And so it's... Um, you know, it, it's as scary on the 10th hire as it is on the first hire. That doesn't diminish because the accountability to that family uh, is exceptionally high. And my day, um, you asked about my day. So we start, um, you know, everybody gets in the office. I'm in about 745. I arrange my day, prioritize and prep. Nine o'clock, we have a daily team meeting. Everyone comes. We go through, um, you know, questions, top three, you know, there's an agenda for each day that we, um, you know, whatever the theme is. And that team meeting is a really important piece because we get their chit chat out. We deal with our issues, questions. We know where everyone's at and can make adjustments. It's kind of a stress test and I can speed train. That speed training is a critical piece because it allows everyone to learn from the circumstance. So next time that issue or problem comes up, I'm not involved. They can handle it. Um, and so growing our people is a really big piece to do 400. We need, you know, brilliant people able to make decisions and move forward in that process. It takes some time to develop, but once they're developed, golly, it's, it just makes it so much more, um, fun to, to conquer this kind of volume with a group. So you're in a little bit before eight. When do you leave? I leave at five, four days a week. I do stay late one day a week. Not everyone can meet during business hours. So I have this already arranged with my husband and children. They don't expect me. They manage dinner and do whatever. And I will stay late and, and meet with my clients one night. And I want to I clarify too. You say you have 10 on your team. I don't think I would say you have 10 on your team. I don't want to discount your processors. But like every mortgage loan originator needs a processor. Like you, you just do, whether it's a direct submit, whether it's a traditional, whether they're in your branch or they're, they're in a operation center 200 miles away in order to close 400 loans, you need 400 loans to be processed. So I look at your sales team and your sales team is you and six or seven others because you have three processors. I know you run a well-oiled machine and I'm sure your processors are top notch and they probably do a little bit more than what a traditional processor would do. But I started running the numbers. I'm like, well, actually, you know, I don't want to shortchange Molly, you know, thinking that you're doing 400 units with 
with 10 people. I think you're doing 400 units yeah. with seven. If I didn't have my processors, I'd use corporate processing, right? Like, yes. so that it would yeah. be a corporate thing. So I just like the control in my office, but really from the sales side, talking to clients and agents, there's three front end plus me. So there's really only four people yeah. that are selling for per se. Yeah. That's fantastic. That is phenomenal. What, um, looking into the future, what scares you? What keeps you up at night? <laughs> I was telling Dessa before this, I, I do want to talk about fear. I've struggled with some fear recently. Uh, I'll probably say some things that you're really not supposed to, but looking back, you know, these last two years have been golly, like amazing, remarkable for volume, but they also reflect, um, you know, it, it was hard. 2020, we didn't have the staff in place and the tsunami comes with the refinances and it was hard. And then you add on to it all of the layers of pandemic and politics and my city burned down and it was just a lot of weird stuff. Um, and so I'm patching up my team members and we're managing breakdowns and we're trying to carry on. So it was an incredible year for volume, but it hurt. It hurt. Then 2021, amazing year for volume and actually became a lot more fun because we started doing life again. Humans were back into my office, kids sports and schools were back on. So now we're running full force with our life and managing the volume. Thankfully we hired and we have some people to help, but it was also a difficult year because it was so much action in, in business and in life. However, these last two years, our phone rang. We didn't have to work super intentionally on generating business. My skill sets as a salesperson, I think diminished a little. Okay. We were order takers. <laughs> and, and now, um, you know, looking forward, my fear is how do I repeat that volume knowing, um, I have to redeem the time. I have to bring some of those foundational things back on, power hour, making outbound calls and getting my list really organized and who I'm going to call and having the right amount of appointments to generate the right amount of leads, to generate the right amount of closings. And I think this year as salespeople, we have to really go and get it. We're not, our phones aren't going to ring like they did in 2020. Yeah. So you have to be more intentional with your actions. Yes. Yeah. There's gonna be less low hanging fruit. You're going to plant fruit out there. You just got to get up on the ladder and go pick it. Yes. And I'm of the mindset, well, I've hired the staff to accommodate a certain volume. Mm -hmm. And I'm committed to each of those families. Therefore, my job is to go and get enough to sustain each of those families for not only just keeping their job, but career path. I want them to have earning potential growth and um, skill set growth and like they're so important to me and I feel a lot of that rests on my shoulders. I'm going to flip the script a little bit. Mindset. You and I started going down this rabbit hole and, and we didn't get a chance to like fully explore it. Yeah. Um, when it comes to mindset and, and you have an audience of several thousand professionals, um, most are mortgage real estate related, but not all like, Looking at all of the success that you have achieved, how has mindset played into that? And then how do you lean into mindset to make sure that you're able to achieve everything you want to do in 2022, regardless of the headwinds that are, uh, that you're facing? Great question. Um, you know, like in my 
my sports, there was a mental game. And in my business, it's a mental game. So much of it starts with the choice we make before our feet even hit the floor. And, you know, I was fussing, you know, about fear creeping in and I hate that. Well, the antithesis of fear is faith. And so I know this, right? I know and understand this, but knowing is different than doing and seeking. So I've had to be really intentional about where I'm getting my filling up. For me, I follow Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. And so I have to find ways to um, start my day with the word and um, understanding like what who I am and what I'm designed for and allow that to really take over my heart and my mind for the day. Without it, I do struggle with fear. And the more fear or anxiety that comes, I... I find myself kind of diminishing, like, uh, you know, I don't want to make the call. What am I going to say? I get inside my head and I become like a, um, I don't know, like, I don't have the adjective, but I get really insecure. Okay. And so I feel like the battle is in the mind. And for me, it's continually overcoming, like throughout the day, all the time. Now I'm, I don't live in like a state of hysteria. I don't want to make it sound like that, but I have to be very intentional about where I'm putting my focus. Um, and, and that starts in the morning. I, know, I love it. I absolutely love it. I have two last questions for you. You ready for the last two? Bring it. All right. Um, what advice would you give to someone who was entertaining the idea of entering the mortgage industry as a mortgage loan originator. Like they called you up just like you hit up the yellow pages 20 years ago, but this time they Googled you and they, they looked for some top lenders in the greater Minneapolis area and they found your name and they reached out to you and like, hey Molly, I'm gonna go get my NMLS. I'm gonna pass my test and I wanna enter the industry as a loan officer. My aunt Susie gave me your name and number as someone who's really good at this career, at this job. What would you tell that person when they called you? Sure. So this is assuming they want what I want. They want a career like mine or what I want. Uh, you know, obviously in lending, there's all sorts of types of loan officer. And I consider the way we do it, we're like the big leagues. We have to generate our own sales. So you could go work at a bank and the people will walk in the door. And that's just, it's just not how I roll. So if they want what I want, then... They need to be immersed into a top producing shop, starting with kind of the inside out, working as a loan partner or loan assistant where they're working on loans, learning how to calculate, understand loan rules, regulations, the process, and then move into a selling position where there's outbound calls. Maybe it's filling events or calling clients and setting appointments, and then eventually meeting with um, clients for um, structuring loans, pre-approvals. I... I think by working inside of a loan officer's team as a loan partner or processor for one year has great value, great value. And then one year as like a, maybe a junior or um, yeah, I guess like a junior mm -hmm. salesperson and being around that loan officer as much as possible, listening to their phone calls, sitting in on their appointments, um, when that loan officer becomes a loan officer, if they want to be in the big leagues, I honestly think it's a two-year grind. Outbound calls, no matter what, every single day, setting appointments. And after two years, maybe your phone will ring in, and that's a beautiful thing. But uh, um, 
you know, people, not people, but sometimes um, our society is like so, um, like we want it now. Instant gratification. Instant gratification. And from, you know, building a successful sales career, there has to be some time in the trenches. So being willing to take that time in the trenches, learn and absorb, uh, will be a foundation for a very successful career. So that's very interesting. So if I were to recap that in your perfect world, talking to this younger professional who wants to enter into the industry, they would almost do like a two year apprenticeship where they weren't a full blown LO, but they maybe joined someone like you on your team as a loan partner. Now you, when you hire them, obviously should be fully aware of what their motives are so that you don't invest in someone just to have them leave a year later, but you would have them work for a year or two underneath a top producer inside of the team and then go out on their own. And you're still going to tell them, Hey, by the way, these next two years, which are really years three and four for you in your career, you still gotta, you have to grind it out. You still have to embrace the suck. It's not going to be easy. <laughs> Every single day you have to get up and you have to put one foot in front of the other and you have to make your calls. Whether your calls go well or they don't go well is kind of irrelevant. You need them to get better with time, but you just need to do them. Yeah, it's it's a mindset. You got to be really gritty. You got to be super determined, driven, find a chip on your shoulder and maybe be very curious about what your potential is. And I think that curiosity could lead someone you know, into just the most incredible career. This career has given me a life beyond what I had ever imagined. Mm -hmm. I am so grateful for this business. I feel like I, I don't even know how I got into it really. Was it an accident? Was it divine? I don't know, but thank God because I am not highly educated I, uh, here's a secret. I failed profit and loss or accounting. I failed accounting <laughs> in college, failed F, F failed mm. accounting. And funny joke, I have to read P&Ls and balance sheets and tax returns for a living now. I also failed glass blowing. I'm not an artist. So there we go. Did you take glass blowing? <laughs> yes. Wow. And failed F. But <laughs> even for a failure like me, I was able to still pull up my bootstraps and find a way with amazing mentors and create an incredible life for my team, for my family. And I'm just, I feel so grateful to this industry. Last question. This isn't a question that's mortgage related, but it's uh, an underlying theme of our show. It's everything you should have learned in high school, but didn't because it wasn't taught. What is one thing that you wished was taught to you mm -hmm. in high school? Budgeting and credit. Budgeting and credit. Budgeting and credit. Money and credit. Money is not taught in a, I would say like a, a you know, an applicable way where you're really going to um, account for your own personal finances every single month, save 20%, give 10%. I wasn't taught that until late in my life. And once I was my money moved from emotional to very tactical and it becomes um, exciting now to see how we're able to give or save or even achieve different you know, goals that our family has, maybe a special vacation somewhere without understanding money and budgeting and credit, we would have never accomplished those dreams. I, I couldn't agree more. Like when, when people ask me like, Dio, what do you love about the mortgage industry? I go, cause I go, I love this industry cause I can make a true impact on people's lives. Like a true impact. Like 
yes, it affords me to, to make a living that I think is, is phenomenal. And yes, that living has allowed me to save and to tithe and to give back to the less fortunate. And I'm impacting my community in, in the greater by doing that. But I feel like it's every single borrower that calls. Every borrower that I get to talk to, that I get to share one or two little nuggets of information, nuggets of knowledge about credit, about saving, about budgeting, right? Because most people don't have a financial advisor. Most people don't have enough money that a financial advisor wants to talk to them, right? Like financial advisors, friends of mine, they don't want to talk to you unless you have 100 grand saved. Most of our clients don't have 100 grand saved. That means they don't have anyone in high school, no one in college, and no financial advisor who's sitting down with them and teaching them financial literacy. So if someone's thinking about entering into this industry and you want to know what's my why, my why is you can make the greatest impact. But like you just said, Molly, only if you also live it. Like me as a loan officer, I have to live it. That means I have to follow a budget. It means I have to save 20%. I need to tithe 10%. Tithe 10%. But then if I can do it and I can live it, then I can teach it. Yeah. And when I teach it, I'm doing more than a pre-approval. I'm doing more than a rate quote. Oh, I'm changing lives. And that's why I love this industry. And by the way, I'm changing lives and making bank for the Owen household. Like, how cool is that? Well, how cool is that? You just put a bow on this perfectly. Now we come back to the beginning. One of the things I loved was the potential we talked about, the client um, with money beliefs. And this is exactly what we spend time teaching. We teach our clients credit strategy. We teach our clients uh, money principles. And we empower them to make really informed and wise decisions for themselves. My buyers are powerful buyers through knowledge because we take the time to teach it. And that is what a $100 million producer does. That is the difference. The difference is the mindset. The difference is how Molly tactically tackles what she does for a living. She's not quoting rates and she's not just printing pre-approval letters. No, she's impacting lives because she's teaching financial literacy. Molly. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your morning to come sit with us at the Loan Officer Podcast. You and I could probably do a whole entire series where we go every single day for an hour and just do a deep dive because you are a wealth of knowledge. I love anytime you're teaching a breakout session, I make sure I'm there because I can learn so much from you. But what I've learned and what I want people to know, it's because you've been a student for 20 years. You have been a student for 20 years so that you can be a teacher for the next 20 while continuously staying a student. Yes. That's powerful. Congratulations on all of your success. She is Molly Nadu Peterson. She is a mega producer. She is out of, I say, Minneapolis. You say? Just north of a tiny town called Elk River where we make a big difference. Elk River, Minnesota. Um, thank you so much for your time. That is all the time we have for today. We'll catch the rest of y'all on the next episode. Thanks, Peace.